Hey guys, real quick before we begin, I just want to take a, a brief moment to thank all of you guys for a wonderful 2017. It was a pretty big year for all of us here at the Sixers Beat professionally, and none of that would really be possible without the continued support for all of you guys, the readers and the listeners out there who have supported our work. So we just wanted to take a moment, you know, there's no real way that we could possibly uh, even remotely repay you guys for the doors that have been opened up for us, uh, but we at the very least wanted you to know that it was appreciated uh, and that we will continue to work hard to represent you guys as the voice of the fans. Also, about the upcoming podcast, uh, it was recorded before the wins against Denver and against Phoenix. The difference between this time and all the other times we've released a podcast after major news happened is this time I knew in advance I had to do some traveling and wouldn't be able to get to it right away. So we tried to steer the conversation into more general topics about the team that would kind of withstand a day or two of time in between the recording or, or posting. You'll probably hear us reference like last night or the other day. Outside of that, though, it should hold up fairly well, I think. Uh, that's just natural. Like It happens during a natural course of a conversation and we slip up. But we really did try to steer the conversation to something that would, like I said, withstand a day or two of time in between when it was recorded, when it was posted. Uh, so we talked mostly about Brett Brown and the job he's been doing as head coach, how much of the team's struggles can be attributed to him. We also talked some about Markel Fultz and the injury update, and also about which of the veterans Brian Colangelo has brought in that have been the most frustrating. One other quick note before we begin. A, some people have mentioned that my, the morning newsletter I used to send out as part of my Patreon was useful and is now missed. Go check out Grandma Helen's Attic. Uh, it's a fan post over at LibertyBallers.com. It provides a very similar service. All that out of the way, once again, happy 2018 to all. Thank you very much. Stick around, enjoy the pod, and happy new year. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined once again by Rich Hoffman. On this week's Sixers beat, uh, we have quite a bit to talk about. The team has continued to blow huge leads down the stretch. Markel Fultz, or the team kind of, sort of, a little bit, gave an update on Markel Fultz, which we'll get to. Talk about which vet you're most disappointed in and whether or not it is a failure to make the playoffs. Before we get into all that, uh, subscribe to the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, a whole bunch. Get links to that over at SixersBeat.com. Also, check out the CLNS Media app. You can find ourselves, B-Ball Breakdown, Real GM Radio, Sam Vecini's Game Theory Podcast. Many more of those are big hitters in terms of basketball, though, so go check that out. It's in the the, the Google Play and the Apple App Store. Um, also, this podcast brought to you by Harry's Razors. Harrys.com slash Sixers Beat. Great shave, half the price. I personally use a product myself. I really do endorse it. How you doing, Rich? How's your holiday? It's been better than the Sixers, Derek. I can tell you that. <laughs> that it was. I um, I actually came down. This is part of the reason why it's been two weeks since we did a podcast. I came down with a cold on uh on on Christmas Eve, which was which was fun, but it was still a you know it's still a, a great time of year. I just wish I wasn't um you know coughing up a lung while it was going on, but. No, it was great. It was great. Uh, and the the team is always well positioned for a road trip because of the Disney on ice tour at this time of year. So we all kind of get a little bit of little bit of relaxation time with our families. It was nice. The team's play, on the other hand, has not. What is it? Ten to twelve now? 
You, I think it's 10 to 12. Yeah, that sounds right. I, I kind of stopped it's, checking. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. That, uh, that, that one win, uh, that Christmas Day win, actually, which, which, which you were at, that was a, a brief oasis in what has otherwise been a, a, a disaster. Disaster of late. Yeah. All right. So, God, they're blowing leads left and right. It's... Oh, left and right. Let's, uh, let's get into that right off the bat. A lot of the losses are either against bad teams, the Suns and the Lakers to kind of kickstart this, these losing ways, some of them kind of what you would classify as expected losses. Cavs and the Pelicans without Embiid, okay, we can get behind those losses. Another loss to the Kings in there. Two losses to the Raptors, which they always lose to the Raptors. The win against the Knicks, which was nice, but then another huge 18-point lead that they blew late in the third quarter, early in the fourth quarter. Rich, what do you think is going on with some of these leads? Uh, I mean, it's... It, you know that everybody wants to play the blame game at these points, and I, I tweeted the other night that that uh, the loss to Portland was the Sixers' third in nine days, where they held a lead of sixteen or more points in the second half. That's kind of hard to do, I imagine. Um, Not great, Rich. Not great. Yeah. And and look, I am all for the idea that we shouldn't focus on the order of events and look at the whole picture. But but after some point, can you all just hold on to a friggin' lead at some point? I mean, come on. It, it's like they're Lucy, and everybody watching them is Charlie Brown. It's like, how far can they get get up before we can trust them to not pull the football back? <laughs> and, I mean, w- when it comes to the blame game, you know, I think there's three areas that a lot of people look at, and that is the inexperience of the star players, the lack of depth on the bench, and third, Brett Brown. And I know the the hot button issue over the past couple of weeks has certainly been Brett. Um, and and I, I guess I'll get out in front of it and say I would frame it this way. I don't necessarily think he has been crushing it the past few weeks. The Sixers have lost a lot of games in the same fashion lately. The turnovers are unbelievably frustrating. Even that game they won in New York, they play a pretty clean game and then just decide to start throwing the ball all over the place down the stretch just to make things interesting. Nothing comes easy for them. So is there a world where another coach, the guy the guy that Brett learned under comes to mind right away, is doing a slightly better job with this roster? Yeah, I could buy that. Yeah, well, but, that that's part of my, yeah, every time, well, Popovich wouldn't be losing like this. Okay. Great. Popovich is one of the greatest coaches of all time. I'm certainly, nobody here is saying Brett is Greg Popovich. Nobody is probably even saying that he's Brad Stevens. I mean, these are two of the guys that I consider to be the very top of the, the league. But that's that, that's a different conversation. If you're telling me that one of the greatest coaches in the game could get a couple more wins, yeah, I buy that completely. Completely. Yep. And all of the team's issues have a whole lot to do with both the roster makeup and the lack of experience. This year's team is not some sort of sleeping giant that is being mismanaged. That's the way I'd put it. I mean, take the turnovers, for example. The Sixers turn the ball over on 17.4% of their possessions. That leads the league by a freaking mile. The only other team I looked it up over 17% in the last six years was that train wreck, historically awful, Tony Roten first option Sixers offense from 2014-15. But then you look at this year's 
the highest usage players. I mean, what one guy has played less than sixty games? Another one has the. I mean, he has the third highest usage rate in the league too of anybody. The other is an unbelievably talented twenty-one-year-old point guard who really, really, really doesn't want to shoot outside of five feet, which is a little bit of a problem. Or get to the free throw line of late either. Like that outside of five feet, five feet includes the free throw line as well. Yeah, it's bad. I, I mean, it's you know, it's it, it's. Look, Ben Simmons is awesome, but in terms of turning the ball over, that's going to be a, a huge factor. Um, and then the other is a 33-year-old shooting specialist who is seeing more attention than he has received in years. So, you know, these guys are surrounded by the deadly combo of not much spacing at all and almost no shot creation. You predicted before the season, I believe, that they were going to lead the league in turnovers. As astute of a basketball mind as you are, this does not exactly make you Nostradamus. <laughs> no. Guess what? They're not magically taking care of the ball at a top 10 rate with Popovich. There's no way to play BS, check down, Alex Smith type basketball. Actually, there is. We saw how that went with Doug Collins. It's not good. Right. It, yep. So while I totally think it's right to say that Brett hasn't proven himself to be the guy in the way that Stevens might be as far as another young or, or new coach, there's no way he should be on the hot seat in the way that some people are talking. The expectations for this team this season were largely too high before the year started, and they definitely became too high with how they got out of the gate so quickly. Yeah, I think I think there are kind of four factors at play, and I, th- I think you, you pretty much nailed them in there. I'm just going to reiterate them. There's a youth and inexperience, expectations that were way too high, expectations that were raised, by the way, that they overachieved at the start of the season. Um, lack of shot creation. And Brett isn't perfect. And I think when I get into it on Twitter, you know, I think a lot of people will look at that as me saying Brett can do no wrong. That's that's not what I'm saying at all. But that's me responding to people who think Brett Brown is the problem. Brett Brown should be fired. And that's the angle that I'm coming at it from. And I think that's that's pretty ludicrous, to be honest. Because like you said, when you look at this team at the start of the season, you said, okay, you got Joel Embiid. At that point, he had probably played 100 organized games of basketball in his life. And every time I say that, it becomes even more absurd that he's doing what he's doing. But there are downsides to the fact that he's played 100 fucking games of organized basketball in his life. That's a way better way to put it, by the way, than me saying he's played 60 games. games. No, he's played 100 games, period. Right. It's when I mean, he might be up to maybe 100. It might have been slightly over 100. I think what I estimated that was maybe 100 100, or 150, 160, including this year. And we're talking AAU, we're talking JV in there, we're talking varsity, and we're talking college. That is an obscene, an obscenely small amount of games to be played. It's, it's almost no experience for a guy that you're asking, who's really right now your only half-court option. And I don't mean your only good half-court option, your only real legitimate half-court option. He's There's nobody else that can create a shot, not even Ben Simmons right now. To put him in a spot where he's got to be your whole, your entire offense, you're going to turn the ball over a lot. But here's what I'll say. The team actually turns the ball over less frequently when you're running it through a guy who has 150 games of, of organized basketball experiences in his life. Like The turnover rate goes up when he's not in the court because, like I said, there's nobody, nobody whatsoever that can consistently create a shot in the half court. 
that's a huge thing to overcome when you're a coach. Like that's people ask, well, why do they take so many threes? Well, what you're gonna have Jared Bayless break somebody down off the dribble? It's not <laughs> happening. You're not creating good shots by doing that. And I think that has to be taken into account. I do think Markel Fultz can help that quite a bit. I think the way this team was constructed, which with a bunch of spot up shooters and utility men who would play off of Embiid and Simmons and Fultz is part of the problem. Not that it shouldn't be constructed that way because you want to put these guys in a spot where they can succeed. But when you lose one cog like Fultz because of injury, when you lose another guy like like Simmons because he's now a little bit gun shy to attack and he's not, not that he won't in time, but I think right now you're starting to see some of that rookie learning curve that we expected. And when you have Embiid in and out of the lineup, you're going to have some pretty fucking ugly basketball. I don't care if it's Red Auerbach or Greg Popovich or Brett Brown. So I think, you know, my general premise covering a team, and you can go back, this isn't a Brett Brown thing. I think coaches get a lot of the blame for poor roster decisions and poor roster construction. You can go back. I've commented on this many times on podcasts, on Twitter. You know, a lot of coaches get fired and they go, well, what the fuck was he supposed to do with that roster? Like you're firing a guy because there's fan outroar and you don't want to take the heat right now. This happens all the time. Shit rolls downhill. And I think a lot of that is is happening with Brett Brown right now. And that, again, none of that is to say that he's perfect, that he doesn't make decisions that I don't question a lot. But that's to say no coach is going to be perfect and no coach is going to get this group of talent. Like people complain about the lineups. And I agree. There are some lineups that Brett Brown throws out there that are not optimal. And I think as the season goes along, especially if Markel Fultz does come back relatively soon, if we keep seeing a lot of these two big lineups out there, I'm going to lose my mind. That's one area where I disagree with Brett. He kind of has a, a philosophy where he's got to take his best guys and he's got to make figure out a way to make it work. And with this team right now, as much as we'll get on Amir Johnson, as much as we'll get on Trevor Booker, in terms of pure what you can rely on, what they will, um, what they will do on the court, they are among your, your nine best players. But playing them ahead of guys who are lesser talents like TLC right now puts you in some funky lineup things. And I think I disagree with Brett. Like, you might have to just say, look, Trevor Booker might be one of my nine best players. He can't play right now. Uh, and maybe put yourself in more normal lineup situations. But you can make – Brett Brown can be perfect. This team is still going to blow leads. They're still going to turn over, turn the ball over at a high rate. They're still not going to be a much above 500 team. So I look a lot at what my expectations were. Okay, they're 15 and 19. I think before the season, I predicted them at 40 wins. I think you were a win or two lower. I think after they, they won, you know, 13 of their first 21 games or whatever, I think we might have bumped that up a win or two. We were certainly not as high as a lot of people. So I look at a team that I expect to be right around 500 or slightly below, and they're at 15 and 19. Okay. Like that to me is not sound the alarm. I very much do view basketball and progress not in a, I mean, Sam Hinkie made this kind of like a catchphrase, but it's, it's not linear. Like there are ups and downs to a season. It's kind of a fun game I'll play sometimes. Just go through a 500 team's record. Go through their game log. Pick an arbitrary endpoint at various points throughout the season and craft the narrative. And whether that could be a team losing five in a row, fire the coach. Team winning five in a row, oh, they're turning around. Well, then they'll follow that five-game losing streak with, you know, a stretch where they win six out of eight. Or they'll follow that, you know, five-game winning streak by streak by really struggling, and that doesn't mean those 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 narratives that you could have crafted by looking at the schedule were any more relevant. It's just the ebb and flow of a season. And I think we're very much in the portion of that. I think that's probably why at the beginning, when they started off thirteen and nine, we probably didn't adjust our win total as much as everyone because we kind of expected this to happen, and for it to happen when Covington's been in and out of the lineup, when 
Embiid's been in and out of lineup, when Reddick's been in and out of lineup, when Fultz hasn't even played, and when Simmons is struggling. Like, yeah, I'm not looking at Jared Bayless and Amir Johnson and TJ McConnell as creating consistently good half-court offense. That's just that's just not really going to happen. It's It's been an all-out deluge against Brown lately, like every time they lose, which has been frequent of late. And I just think, you know, I, I'm very much, somebody asked me this, oh, you're criticizing Colangelo and his moves. Why aren't you criticizing Brown? Well, I think, I think GMs have five to 10 times the impact of winning that coaches do. Like it's just, that's where I think the problems are stemming from. So that's where I kind of tend to focus. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, there are coaches all over the league that get fired. I mean, David Fisdale was the last one where you say, well, this isn't really his fault at all. And it's a shame that he got fired. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's like you said, if he's, if it's down to whether he needs to play Timothy Lawawu Cabarro or Trevor Booker, <laughs> right. at, at some point there isn't a great option. There. <laughs> right. And like, <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's like you were saying too, 500 teams, the, the ebb and flow to the season is real. I think, I, I forget somebody, one of my colleagues once told me, I forget who it was, that in terms of being a journalist, the most fun teams to cover are 500 teams because the wins and losses, they, they come in bunches. And, you know, when it's a losing team like we had covered for the Sixers the last few years, the losses, you just become numb to them. It's just another night on the schedule. And then a winning team, too, whenever they lose, it's, all right, we'll just get it back the next night. Maybe we didn't play that hard. Sort of like the Warriors last night against the Hornets. And, yeah, I mean, just to get back to Brett, to say these guys aren't getting any better – it's it's wrong in some cases. I mean, I'll stick with the turnovers again. On on a permanent basis, Embiid, his assists are up and his turnovers are down. That's progress. Right. Now, I understand he was starting from a, a pretty extreme point, but he is getting better in that regard. I looked at it yesterday, too. The Sixers are currently, this might have changed overnight, but they were seventh in defense. Seventh. I know. And, I know. <laughs> and 20th in offense which is up from 17th and 30th last year. So I'm not saying everything is fine, but I'm also not saying everything is fine a la Max Rappaport's Twitter avatar either, like the meme. Um, There are areas that the team and players are improving. It's, It's just that they keep blowing these leads, which I understand is really frustrating. All right, let's run through a couple things and list how much culpability you put on Brett. So I guess we'll we'll start off with those with those leads. How much do you think is Brett's fault and how much do you think they can really be, as Brett would say, arrested? I I would say the leads are are a little more on him. There might have been a, a couple possessions the other night in Portland where I would have rather him called a timeout, and his philosophy is to try and save those timeouts for the end of games. But look, I mean, just it, it's the most recent game. Embiid got tired the other night. His post-ups against Nurkic just, they weren't happening. I And I will say this, one of the things the Sixers did the other night that frustrated me, and this is something you can look at the coach at, when Nurkic got five fouls with around 11 minutes left in the fourth quarter, they should have been posting up Embiid on every possession to try and foul him out of the game. Now, the refs were playing like prison 
rules with what Nurkic was allowed to do to Embiid, but that was a little bit frustrating. I'm, I'm thinking back to the other game. I mean, the the Toronto game, I'm not really going to give too much to Brett there. I that That was a better team waking up and playing a more switchable lineup, which, by the way, also happened in Portland last night. If you notice, they put Maurice Harkless in on Ben Simmons instead of Evan Turner. Yep. That kind of worked on both sides of the ball. I think the same thing happened with Toronto, where they put Siakam and somebody else into the game, and then Ben was much less effective as well. And then the Kings game, honestly, I, I, I kind of forget what even happened there. They just started turning the ball over like crazy. But Was that the game J.J. went out? Yeah. Yeah, he went out in the third I, I quarter. And if if you look at both of these two big blown leads of late, the Kings and the Blazers, in the Kings game you lose JJ like right at the apex of their lead. I think it was right. They might have. I think that or high lead that game was maybe sixteen. I think they lost JJ when they were up eleven, something in that regard. And their offense, their half court offense, just went in the the tank. Last night you were up eighteen when Covington went out. Like he he left right at the biggest lead, and they just they couldn't recover. And even it's not even like Covington had a great game. Uh, but they lost one more defender on McCollum. They lost a guy who can legitimately stretch the floor. And when you replace that with a guy like Trevor Booker, that's a huge deal, even if he's not taking or making threes. They don't have the depth to recover from losing either of those two two guys right now. Yep, you said it perfectly. And, I mean, Covington really – he doesn't look 100% to me, by the way. And He said this the other no. day, that his back is still bothering him a little bit. But even an 80% Rocco – is so crucial to this team's success because the wing depth behind him is just no good. It's non-existent. They have to play TJ in crunch time. And, hey, sometimes that works. I mean, TJ was great against the Knicks. That actually worked out because he was playing so well. But last night he was missing his spot-up threes. So, you know, that that makes Redick have to guard McCollum, and then you're kind of screwed. So, again, this is a little bit on Brett. I, I don't think he was perfect. Obviously, I've had enough of, of both Booker and Johnson playing at the same time. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I also don't understand why Holmes doesn't get a shot if you're going to go with those lineups, even if I don't like the two big lineups. But there's a lot of other things at play here. And I, you know, it's it's frustrating. I, I get it. Um, yeah, I would I, I would like to see Holmes play more. I would like Both because I think evaluating him, developing him is still important. And both because there are just times when they need that shot in the arm offensively. But again, if if that's the biggest complaint you have with Brett, this team probably isn't ready to win at the level you're you're expecting anyway. Yeah, I would like to see Holmes play with Simmons more too, because yes, I think definitely. there's a chance that could unlock Simmons in the half court a little more. Like, like you said, he's not really you know you can boggle up Simmons in the half court if you uh, if you can get back in transition. But if you get a uh, you know an offensive option like Holmes who can finish on the pick and roll as well as most you know he's a top tier finisher in the paint and above the rim that that could help Ben. But but real quick back to Brett. Outside of the complete unfairness of letting go a coach less than half a season in with his first realistically competitive roster, you can't really afford to not give this guy a fair chance. Like, if the goal is to win this season, which still shouldn't be the case totally because the fact has, I mean, the, the team has played up the playoff angle, but firing Brett could have the opposite effect, I think. 
his relationships and the equity he has built with everyone on that team, from the two elite young talents, one of whom Brett was with the whole way for the two most traumatic years of his life, the other one Brett has known since the time he was a kid, he's really close with his family, you know, to the free agent signing who said Brett was the main reason he showed up here. And, and I guess for Redick, I mean, there were 23 million other, right. other reasons for him to show up here, but he clearly has a good relationship with Brett. If you fire that guy, good luck trying to turn around the season. You're going to have some seriously pissed off people. So even if you don't think he's the guy and he needs to go, firing him in the middle of the season is no way to go about this. No, I agree. All right, next, how much of the turnover problems do you put on Brett's shoulders? I mean, I... A little bit, I guess, but it's like we said. They have no shot creation out of Joel Embiid. So, I I mean, would I like to see them improve in the second half of the year on that end? Yeah, but you said it. I mean, you're not going to run Jared Bayless in a pick and roll. It's not going to happen. I mean, they they have – they're so limited on the offensive end in terms of shot creation, and that's showing up with the turnovers. So I would say maybe like 10% I'd put on him. Yeah. Their their turnover problems are almost entirely because of their personnel. Yeah, I would have I would have said almost none. And it's it's like we said about Embiid as an experience, the only real shot creator, Simmons and his struggles and the fact that he right now cannot and will not take a shot, and no other shot creators behind him. I mean I mean, really none. Like you said. A lot of people ask, Well, why don't they run any pick and roll? And it's like, Well, with who? I mean, with like who are you gonna put in a pick and roll? Like Ben Simmons right now, he's just not comfortable attacking in that manner. And there's nobody else on the team that really has that kind of skill set. And I think there's a little bit to it. Like Brett's not a huge pick and roll guy. Um, Like I do think when Markell comes back, that's going to be a real interesting thing to watch because now you have an elite pick and roll or at least a guy with elite talent on the pick and roll. Maybe not production yet because he is still a 19-year-old rookie. But it's going to be interesting to watch Brett integrate him back into it because it's right now not what they do. It's not now what is in their game plan, but how can he adapt to a guy now who has that skill set? Because right now there's nobody that has that skill set. I think, and you look at at Simmons, what he did in college, he turned the ball over. You look at Embiid, what he's done at every step of the way, he's turned the ball over. And right now it's it's a lot of inexperience, a lot of youth, and a lot of guys who have high turnover profiles. So it will be, you know, this to me is, is the one where it's like, is it a problem? Yeah. Is it why they're losing? Absolutely. Is this Brett's fault? No, I, I don't really see that to be the case at all. And that'll kind of lead us into the next part. How big of a, first of all, how big of a problem is it and how big of a mistake is Brett making? A lot of the early shot clock threes that a lot of people are getting at right now. I got it last night and then I went back and I checked. And during that 19-0 run that basically, you know, decided the game last night, they attempted only one three-pointer. Uh, I, I guess the people who were, Mentioning that to me must have really remembered that one three-pointer. But um, this seems to be one where people are really gearing up on Brown for as well. How much of a problem do you think the early threes are? And how much of a problem is that because of Brett? Zero and zero. (laughs) All right. I mean, if we just talked for five minutes about how they have such trouble generating shots in the half court. Well, they have, theoretically at least, some decent shooters. They get an open shot in transition, pull the trigger. I mean, that's what Ben Simmons is best at, too. So pushing the ball, 
and finding guys in transition. No, no problem with that. Yeah, it's it's actually interesting right now. You know, I think a lot of people look at threes, early threes especially, and there's kind of like a, a bunch of old thoughts about them. First of all, that you're making yourself a higher variance team, which I could see that being the case if you're trading shots at the rim for threes. But right now the Sixers are, first of all, they're only, I think, 13th in the league in percentage of their shots from three-point range. They're not even really a three-point heavy team right now. They are 7th in the league in shots within 10 feet of the rim. So they're getting, and when you look at the personnel, and yeah, some of that's going to be transition, but I think people overstate that. Like transition, by and large, makes up about a fifth of your offense. is is kind of a, a pretty good um, pretty good way to remember it. And that's even for a good transition team. So a lot of these, these shots at the rim, shots within 10 feet, are coming in the half court. And be getting be seventh in the league in frequency when you have, okay, Joel Embiid, but then you only have Ben Simmons outside of that who can even remotely create these shots. It's pretty good. Um, they are, let's see, where those shots are coming from, where those threes are coming from, they're 24th in the league in shots between 16 feet and a three-point line. You're not trading layups and post-ups for three-point shots when you have this philosophy. Maybe the maybe the Rockets are, or even there, I bet you the Rockets are mostly just abandoning the 16-foot shot, the 14-foot shot for threes. You're abandoning bad shots, high-variance shots in and of themselves, for better high-variance shots. Like, you're, you're trading long twos for threes. That's what the Sixers are doing. They're not, they're still generating, if you went back, you brought up Doug Collins. If you went back, the Sixers right now probably get more of their looks at the rim than Doug Collins' teams did. The only difference is they're moving that, like I said, that 18-footer out to 22, 23 feet. So I don't think threes, by and large, are the reason this team is up and down. I think youth, inexperience, and a lack of talent, lack of offensive talent, is the reason this team is up and down. Um, in terms of early threes, you know, when the Sixers have bad transition defense, by and large, what I think that is, is Embiid post-ups, because he doesn't have a chance to get back. When Simmons drives, because he also doesn't have a chance to get back, and he's, again, your second biggest defender, your second best rebounder, the guy who can switch the most, who can cross-match cross match the most in transition. When I start talking for like five minutes straight, that's when I still kind of feel like, I feel the end of my cold kind of creeping in, so excuse me for a second. Um, but you don't have that kind of flexibility to get back in transition. And also, those when you have a guy who's under the rim so much, that's it's real easy to get an odd man rush. So I don't think these early threes are even necessarily it hurting their transition defense, maybe a little bit, but I don't think nearly as much as people are saying. And I also think, look, you look at the numbers. I bet you the Sixers right now, I looked this up recently. I bet you on, on threes with, let's say, 18 seconds or more left on the shot clock, or even like 15 seconds or more left on the shot clock, I bet you the Sixers are shooting over 40%. Seven seconds, tell me, seven seconds or less, man. You get better shots yeah, early on the shot clock. If you're going to tell me the Sixers are going to have a better than a – you took look at the expected value of a 40% three-point shot. If you're going to tell me the Sixers have a better shot in the final 10 seconds of the shot clock, I'm going to say probably not. Probably not. I think it just looks awful when the shots don't go in, and right now the shots aren't going in. But uh, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think this is the problem. I, I think maybe the problem is that they rely on this so much. But I don't, I don't put that on Brett at all. Like I put that on the lack of of guys who can really create, the lack of pick and roll options, the lack of of you know playmakers who right now really have confidence in executing 
a pick and roll. It's just, it's, it's, it is what it is. I mean, it, it's, I don't know. I, I, I still go back and I look. These are all symptoms of the personnel on the floor. Agreed. I also liked your usage of odd man rush there too, <laughs> kind of going cross sport. But yeah, I, I agree. Like I think a lot of the time. Which, by the way, I watch almost no hockey, so I don't know where that came from. <laughs> a lot of the time, I, I agree with you. It seemed. I mean, the other night, it, it seemed like it was either Embiid taking a wild shot in the post, and that's when the Blazers were getting out in transition. And by, by the way, Trevor Booker, some of the worst transition defense I've seen in a while yeah. the other night. Guys were just walking to the rim on him. He's, you know, we look at, <coughs> excuse me, I think if you look at Amir Johnson and Trevor Booker, I think of what they can bring to a team, I think I probably like them more than the average fan. Like, I'm not as down on Trevor Booker or Amir Johnson as a lot of people are, but I am down on Trevor Booker specifically for this team. You brought it up when Embiid was posting up, I think, and just the way he gets in his way. And the same thing happens with Ben Simmons. Like when Ben Simmons is looking to drive, Trevor Booker is looking for an offensive rebound. And he's just, the, the, the defense can collapse so easily on these two guys when they're playing alongside Trevor Booker. Like if Trevor Booker was playing, let's say, on Portland with Dame Lillard as the offensive focal point, it might be a different story. Like I could see him adding real value. But with what this team has to do offensively in the half court, the paint is just so clogged right now. His uh, his minutes are are, it's, tough to watch at times and I, I i kind of enjoy watching Tre- if you just zeroed in individually i like trevor booker's hustle i like the way he competes on the glass i like the fact that he will at least attempt to defend although he will get caught in transition sometimes i like a lot of individual things about him but his net effect on what you have to do with simmons and bead right now i think has been borderline disastrous and i don't you know you can blame brett a little bit for that like certainly i think amir is playing more minutes than i thought when he was acquired i think booker is probably playing slightly more minutes than I would have thought when he was acquired too. But I mean, right now the Sixers only perimeter options off the bench are Jared fucking Bayless, who was a train wreck last night and TJ McConnell, who's a little bit up and down because he is still rather limited. And behind them, you have it. Nothing. If either of those two guys have an off night, there is nobody to go to off the bench. It's, it's, it's very frustrating. That one possession the other night where they, they ran the, the cross screen play for Embiid on the post and, Booker flashed to the free throw line to try and run a high low pass. I think it was Myers Leonard. I, I mean, he wasn't guarding him. He was guarding Embiid on the post, and Trevor Booker was at the free throw line, and he wasn't even looking at the basket. I mean, shit, he could have just probably drove in a dunk if he if he tried to. Yeah. It uh, yeah, it's frustrating to watch. Even though, even though his his numbers with Embiid right now, again, small ass sample. Um are not as bad as I thought they'd be. But yeah, it, Rather than saying SSS for small sample size, just, like just make, make it SAS, yeah. small-ass sample. Yeah. I'm down with that. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I mean, we should probably start talking about the free agents now, right? I mean, the, the Amir conversation. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in one second. I will say having three guys, because you had TJ the other night where he got a kick out three, and he hesitated for like three seconds before finally letting it go. And then you have Amir Johnson, who his threes are the, the they're almost funny the way he takes them because his no, feet just flail no, they everywhere. Are, they are funny. <laughs> they're not but almost he'll funny. hesitate too where he'll go a second, two seconds, think about it, and it's like, all right, well, shit, I guess I have to shoot. And Trevor Booker, who, I mean, stationing him at the three-point line is pretty much worthless at this point. Having those three guys kind of gum up your paint, it's, it's really tough for a team that already doesn't have any half-court options 
to then function. It's it's really really frustrating to watch. It's killer. I mean, they don't have any creation, but they also don't really have any shooting off the bench. That's a terrible combo. The fact that they're twentieth in offense, it's not. It could be worse. <laughs> it could be very. We know that. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I mean, Bayless for him to go play as many minutes. How many minutes did Bayless play the other night? Uh, oh, I'm pulling it up right now. Twenty minutes. Twenty minutes, and he ended up with. What was it? One shot attempt. Uh, why can't I find his fucking line? It was a border, one shot attempt. It was a no border, assists. It was borderline club trillion, where yeah. where he just threw some zeros up there. He was. I, I know he had the one turnover where he threw the ball over half court. I, I don't remember oh, him doing anything else though. <laughs> no, the only other register in the box score other than one turnover, one steal, two rebounds, twenty minutes. All right, let's get on to next on our list, which was. Well, I guess the other thing I was going to bring up with Brett and how much culpability he has, lineups and substitutions, I'd give him maybe 30% of that blame. Like, I, I'd like to see more of Rashawn. I'd probably stick with TLC even when he's struggling rather than throw out some of these big lineups. But the combinations he has once you get past the starting lineup are not great. And deciding between mediocre and bad lineups leave very little margin for error for the coach. And they probably make his mistakes look a little bigger than they actually are. Here, here. All right. Um, next up, we have the vets. So you have the guys that that uh, Brian Colangelo has specifically brought in. Um, not counting Ben Simmons, he's obviously not a vet. Jared Bayless signed in the summer of what was it, 2016? Colangelo's first summer for a three-year deal. Amir Johnson and JJ Redick both signed a one-year deals last season. Trevor Booker acquired in a trade. Or last summer, not last season. And Trevor Booker acquired in a trade earlier this month. Which one is frustrating you the most right now? And and which one has not has I guess two part questions. Which one has uh not lived up to your expectations the most? And which one is frustrating you as a move the most? Yeah, and I think that's the way you have to distinguish those two things. Uh because the players honestly don't interest me as much as the decision-making that brought them here. But but let's talk about the players first. So Redick hasn't been at the absolute top of, the, of his game. But when you look at the numbers, it's hard to complain too much about a guy that's shooting 39% from three on a ton of shots. I also think his off-ball movement and the gravity, uh, the positive effect that has on the Sixers' offense is being underrated by a lot of people. Um. But what, what was Embiid's quote about Reddick's defense? I thought he was going to be ass. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought he was going to be bad too. Decent team defender who maximizes his talent. But last night when Covington goes down with his 10th injury this month, he's not sticking with C.J. McCollum down the stretch. And the same goes for Bayless and Johnson, two worst players with obvious deficiencies in their game. So... Then you look at Bayless. I mean, he's still averaging 1.03 points per possession. I looked this up, did a little prep for once uh, on spot-up attempts per synergy, which is still good, but it's not the same type of shooting when he was in Fuego a few years ago. And looking at his career, that was obviously predictable. But, man, when you look at his numbers, the thing that jumps out is how little he's providing in terms of creation. Yes. 
Yep. He's been in the league for a decade now, Derek, and he's assisting on 8.2% of his teammates' field goals attempt, yeah. according to he basketball reference. He has an reference. assist rate of a center, essentially. And for his career, it's half it's half as much as the next lowest mark for any single season. So, I mean, if you, if you think back to two years ago, sometimes there's so much shit that happens here, we have no idea, you know, what it was like two summers ago. Part of the appeal of Bayless was that he could do a little bit of both. Yeah, he was mostly going to be a spot-up guy next to Simmons. But for his career, he was always at least able to capably run a pick-and-roll on backup units. The Sixers aren't giving him that opportunity anymore, and frankly, when you watch him play, I don't blame Brett for that. Yeah, You, you wonder if at, at 30 now, whether or not he really has that in his game anymore. Absolutely. And this is why his spot-up shots, they're so frustrating. Because he's being used like a 6'3 Steve Novak. So when he misses, it's like, oh shit, that's all he does. <laughs> and as for his defense, well, let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> so it is, it is interesting because you bring up his assist rate, and that's something I noted the other day. And it's by far the lowest of his career. And you think, okay, well, are they misusing him? Is this something Brett could, Brett could improve upon? And then you look at Reddick, and he's having the best assist rate of his career. Um, by I think a, or maybe a second best. I think maybe one of those years in Orlando, he might have exceeded it. But he, he, he's towards the top of his assist rate of his career. And you wonder what's going on with Jared. Is it something where he's just not, he's not able to turn a corner even a little bit like he used to? And can he get some of that back? But it's not even just the creation. Like, his decision-making has been wretched of late. And that's been, uh, when you combine missing shots, no defense, providing really nothing outside of your shooting, and bad decision-making, it's not a, it's not the greatest profile for a, a role player. Yeah. And I guess that would be the answer to the original question. Which player is the most frustrating? I can't say I had really high expectations for Bayless, but he's been a little worse than I thought he would be. Uh, you know, it, again, it's it's not by a ton, but he's it, the total lack of secondary creation it is starting to become very bothersome. I knew he was a terrible defender. That that is not surprising in any way, shape, or form. And then you know, Amir, he's he's been fine. I, I don't think I, I like you said earlier. He I, I value him more than I think some. Others do. He's. I, I haven't looked at his numbers recently, but he's rebounding at a pretty high level. Uh, he's not totally inefficient, despite the fact that every shot he takes has to be a hook shot. That, by the way, that that's the biggest difference between Amir and Rashawn. Rashawn will dunk anything. Amir, you can set him up for a spoon-fed dunk, and he'll find a way to turn that into a hook shot <laughs> in one way or another. Um but yeah, I, I think we kind of knew what we were getting with him, and he's been he's been fine, not good, but but fine. I, I don't think he's been unreasonable. So and then and then we talked about Booker already. I, I will say of those players, strictly the on court um, production, Bayless has been the most frustrating to me. But it's close. Yeah, I think I think. I think you're probably right. Like, I think Reddick has been not quite what we expected, but I think, like you said earlier on in this podcast, 
I also think he has more attention on him than he's had in quite some time. And hopefully that is a little bit lessened when Fultz comes back. Hopefully that's a little bit lessened when, you know, Simmons kind of learns how to navigate the way teams are playing him. But I think right now he he just doesn't have the space that he's accustomed to. Like Many people have asked me, you know, why, why is he always on the move when he shoots? Well, he's 6'4", doesn't have the greatest wingspan or size to shoot over people, doesn't really have the athleticism to blow by guys, he's got to be on the move. If he wants even a remotely open look, he's got to be on the move, and especially when you don't have now Chris Paul to create shots for you or, or Blake Griffin to force defenders down into the paint. So I think when you look at what his role has been, I think he has filled it reasonably well. I think I think Booker, if I had to pick a second most frustrating acquisition, it would probably be Booker, not because of really Booker, but because of how he's impacted the rotations and the spacing. Um, which I don't necessarily, in terms of, of providing what you expected, I think he's provided what you expected. I think that's more a fit and personnel decision, which was the second part of the question. But yeah, I think I think it's probably Jared. He's, and which, the crazy thing is, when you look at it on a whole, he's kind of making shots a little bit, not lately. But in the first half of the year, he was shooting well, he's in a slump. But when he's in a slump, his deficiencies become so pronounced. And that's why, you know, a lot of people get on Covington because he is a streaky shooter, and he is a streaky shooter. But Covington provides so many other things when he's not playing well that you live with it, or at least I live with it. Jared doesn't have that kind of a... He, he doesn't have that to fall back on. Yep. All right, let's but get... Let's... in terms of the mistakes, which acquisition was the biggest mistake? It's Jared Bayless by a mile. By a mile. I don't even think it's close. Having that third year, and now sitting here and having to get out of that contract, Considering what he's providing you, how much he's struggling, and how much that third year just doesn't seem like it should have been necessary. Like if you had offered him two years at twelve million per, you can tell me he's not taking that over three at eight million per. Like it just, I don't know why that third year was added on. It's frustrated me. I think maybe we didn't give enough attention to it right when the, the signing happened, but it's frustrated me for a while now. And now when he's struggling, and you're sitting there and looking at a potential max contract next summer, it just that's going to be a huge focus between now and the summer and I'm not sure what it's going to cost to get rid of him to be honest yep I said it at the time of the deal that that third year bothered me and it bothers me even more now uh and it's funny I in my notes wrote down the same thing you did would have been on board with two years 24 mil and if that's what it ended up as we would be sitting here saying hey swing and a miss on that one but at least you didn't mess things up long term would and that's you, why, you know, I think a lot of people will look, oh, you spent, you know, $34 million on Reddick and Amir, and you still have these kind of issues. And it's like, yeah, you, you spent $34 million, but, you know, if the team really wanted to go out, and what I'll say is the team is very focused on cap space next summer. And when you limit yourself to one-year deals, like you're making that trade-off, like, yeah, this team isn't going to be as good today. It's not going to be as deep today. But we're gonna we're gonna trade that off for a chance to be, um, you know, players in free agency next summer. And I think I do grade Amir and Reddick on a little bit of a curve because of that. But Bayless, it's like uh, I don't, I just I, I just don't get the thought process behind that one at all. I don't get it at all. Yeah, and and for for a team that isn't exactly flush with late first round picks anymore, that's just a bad job by Colangelo. There's no other way to put it. Now, I mean, we'll see if he can somehow salvage it, but the point is that it shouldn't even be at this point. Yeah. So yep. So then you get the Redick. Uh, 
<laughs> and I, I, you know, you hear it sometimes. I, I don't want to say that this has become sort of a, a loud talking point, but his the idea of oh, he's making twenty three million dollars and he's you know he's sh- sh- shooting whatever he does exactly. So that's why I have trouble criticizing his deal. They paid a premium to keep the powder dry next year. And while I don't necessarily think Colangelo has done an awesome job with these free agents, that rarely gets brought up in all of the complaints. Um, they were never going to win big with these guys this season. No. So the idea. You're never building a championship contender on one year deals. So the idea of keeping space open until next year or even the year after really does limit your options in terms of the quality of player you're going to get. Um, and they needed a knockdown three-point shooter that defenses have to game plan for. So they went out early and locked him up for a year. I have no problem with that. Um, the Amir deal, that sort of falls into the category that I think the Bayless deal should have been if it was two years. Not a great player, but you didn't screw up anything long-term. And if they had done the Bayless deal for two years or less, I would be sitting here saying that Colangelo is getting too much criticism for these deals. Um, I mean, it, I don't think they needed an expensive backup center in terms of Amir, even if they were a little bit scared about Embiid, you know, what what happens when he's out of the lineup, more than, say, wing depth. But, you know... I, I I mean, it's it's hard to – you really do have to emphasize that this is easier said than done when you're offering one-year deals. So, uh, so like some available players in retrospect who would fit great now, who didn't necessarily fit well then, you know, I'm thinking like a shot creator like Tyreek Evans. I mean, they thought they were going to have Markel Fultz. And then there are bargains like Mba Mute but who, who you just didn't need on this team. So when you look at the list of players who accepted in the range of $11 million or less, whether that was over one or two years, it's not a great group. You know, I'm looking right. in retrospect at some of the guys that might have fit better here. I'm, I'm We're talking like Omri Caspi or Tabo Cephalosha or someone else like that. They did not whiff on a whole host of great players at their price range. But that goes back to why the Bayless contract is the one to be mad about. Yep. I, I mean, my, my biggest complaint with uh, with the Amir signing is that, like you said, I'm just not sure you needed to prioritize a backup center like that. And maybe if you could have found a way to get somebody else, even if they would have been a flawed player, it, it might, might just, you know, in terms of a roster imbalance, which is like my favorite word now because we spend so much time talking about shoulder imbalance, in terms of roster imbalance, it just didn't make a whole ton of sense. And I get that you were petrified of Embiid going down, but if Embiid goes down, you're fucked anyway. So I mean, what you know, I'd rather focus on surrounding Embiid with talent than mitigating what happens what if Embiid does go down. But in terms of the quality of the player you got at eleven million dollars for a one year deal, I think I, I think Amir Johnson is within the range of what you could expect for a one year deal like that. It just maybe it should have been focused somewhere else. And the same thing with the Booker deal, too. I think Booker is fine in theory in a vacuum for a second-round pick. Just should have focused that somewhere else for that. Like, it, it you know, whatever. Yep. Um, it, it's one of those things where a lot of these moves <laughs> on their own and in a vacuum are not in defense. You know, they're, they're, they're defensible. But when you just – the puzzle pieces just don't fit together. And, and it yep. makes them look worse than they actually are. 
So Yeah, and I think that's what I'll say so far about Colangelo. Like, I think by and large, they've kept their eye on what they needed to keep it on in terms of being aggressive for the young player they want. We don't know if that's going to be the right call, but I do think that was at least, you know, if they felt that strong about Fultz, I like. And by the way, I felt that strong about Fultz at the beginning, uh, heading into the draft too. Then I like being aggressive there. I think their priorities coming into the season were extend Embiid, extend Covington, and make themselves players in 2018. I think those should have been the top priorities. So far, I think they are. I think it'll be real interesting when we get to the deadline. You go, okay, look, this team desperately needs, like Lou Williams is a name that's always brought up. This team desperately needs a shot creator. Well, yeah, it does. If you want to win this year, if you want to make the playoffs this year, it does. If you want to stop this losing streak, they do. But is that really what your goal is? Or should it be to put Markel Fultz in that role and give him minutes and shot creation and live or die by with what he's able to give you? I think they're still of the of the, the part in their development where, and by the way, I think this is, Maybe not the fans that listen to this podcast, but I think doing this would piss off a lot of fans in general. But I think they're still in that portion of their rebuild where you've got to worry about, look, we we got to play Markel. we got to put him in a spot where he's going to create. We've got to put him on a spot where he can get better on the court. And I think if you're looking at, at trade deadline, this is a completely different podcast, but I think if you're looking at trade deadline acquisitions, you have to take that into account as well. Totally. I, I think we could have that convo more in depth in a few weeks when the when the deadline approaches and when and Mar- Markel is on the floor, yeah. hopefully. 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 Or at least taking jumpers in public. That would be great. Let's let's um, get to Mr. Fultz though. All right. Um so I, I think Brett announced this week that on the West Coast trip the Sixers would be incorporating the number one pick into some team drills. And then there was a further update, I believe it was Keith Pompey of the Philadelphia Inquirer, that Fultz's work has mostly been on-court form shooting drills with, uh, I might not say this right, uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who's a very good player in the 90s, uh, who I think, weirdly enough, was still getting buckets at uh, 48 years old in that Iverson League this summer. Uh, yeah, 48, too. He's pretty good. I mean, Gray... Like gray hair and gray beard, and he's still like smoking Mike Bibby off the dribble. Although I think I could probably I could probably do that at this time too. Uh, so I, you know, as we've said time and again here, that shooting form is the whole key. Basically, you can tell me those muscles are balanced. I mean, so damn balanced. The, the most balanced <laughs> muscles of all time, all you want. But until until you see him shoot a normal jump shot. And then a few more normal jump shots in a row doesn't really matter. So it so is that, amazing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you go. I was gonna say. So when was the the point where he was medically cleared? I mm, hold on. Was that the December 9th update when he was medically cleared? And here we are three weeks later, and he's been doing form shooting the entire time. Does every shoulder injury require a month of form shooting to get back? I don't. I don't know, Rich. I don't know. Anyway completely different podcast um not really but just something i don't necessarily want to get into so go ahead well i mean you wrote about this uh, over the past couple of days and i mean the gist of what you wrote was and by the way on the athletic.com go go get yourself a subscription if you haven't uh you said hey you know this seems like pretty good news it went on the road to playing basketball it helps to you know Play, play basketball. Play basketball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
But, you know, as you've already alluded to, this is the Sixers, and there's always a caveat in the the road to playing basketball. Um, It's still just so strange, man. Oh, of course it's strange. It's 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 very strange. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I mean, it's so November nineteenth. I guess getting into the timeline a little bit. So on October twenty ninth, blah blah blah. No structural damage. He'll have PT. Then on November nineteenth, the soreness is dissipating. The muscle imbalance is improving. He'll continue repeat. Continue PT. And begin progressing toward full basketball activities. That's on November 19th. On November 19th, it also says he'll be reevaluated, reevaluated in two to three weeks. His return to gameplay determined by how the shoulder responds to progressive basketball training and practices in the interim. So that's saying that in the next two to three weeks after November 19th, he's going to start progressive basketball training and practices during that time. So now here we are. That's November 19th. Here we are on December, what was it, 27th, 28th, when the news broke. We find out that he's only ever done form shooting during those 40 days. And that what they said on November 19th didn't even remotely come to pass. And look, my biggest issue isn't, I mean, part of it's why it happened. But part of it's why isn't anyone being made available to talk about this? Why Why is it the 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 updates we're getting only via press releases? He brought it up. He was asked at one time during a press conference, I think it was on December 8th, when the Trevor Booker trade happened. He by and large deferred any any talk about it to that medical update that they'd release the next day. Look, if you're going to set the expectation on November 19th that he's going to begin progressing towards basketball activities and that his return to gameplay will be based on how that how that works out in the next two to three weeks, if you're going to set that um, if you're going to set that expectation that you're going to be progressing towards that in that timeline, just answer why those expectations weren't met. Like, I I think we all understand that there are setbacks at times. Fucking talk to the fans, though. That That's really my only point. <sighs> the whole thing has been frustrating as hell because there's no real detail on any of these updates. There's no reasoning why these expectations aren't being met. There's no, no, <sighs> uh, I don't know. What what do you got? I'm I'm burned out on it, to be honest. Well, I enjoyed your your line in that piece that Colangelo only steps out from behind the shadows when a major transaction is made or when fan annoyance reaches a fever pitch. The relationship guy. Yeah. Uh and that's mostly a shot at all of the uh all of the fossils. Oh, Hanky in the shadows. It was absolutely a shot. Yep. All of the fossils who uh disingenuously sold him as much. Not not as much towards Brian. Um so I, I will say this. Uh, I, I agree with you. I'm a little conflicted on this one. And, and I'll play a little devil's advocate with you just for the sake of uh, the podcast here. Um, I'm going to hit you with the type of follow-up question that we can't ask anymore. <laughs> right. uh, so is the radio silence really shifting more attention toward faults? Ba- basically what I'm saying is, after the messy initial handling of the situation, that crazy two days where the agent was making up injuries and all that crap, um, would, would is is there a better option than radio silence for what could be a young guy with confidence issues? I guess well, okay, I'm a little so I, torn on that. All right. So 
we've been I've been pretty clear from the jump, from the moment this Fultzing came out, that I think he changed his shot over the summer and came into camp unprepared to play basketball, basically. Maybe there's some shoulder stuff in there too, but I think the, the major issue is getting that jump shot back to where it was. If you're looking at it from, okay, look, this is the reality of the situation. He's not ready to play basketball. We have to come up with an excuse for why that is. Or if you're looking at it from the situation of he has a legitimate shoulder injury, either way, the best way to shift focus off of Fultz, because look, right from the jump, Brett Brown, before training camp, came out and said, look, he changed his shot. Like, he, Brett was not, he was pretty clear on this. He changed his shot, Brett would say. The Sixers' goal, regardless of whether it's a real shoulder injury that caused him to change his shot, or whether or not he's changed his shot in the summer, is to cover for him, is to make people believe that the shoulder injury is the underlying factor. And I think when you set an update, set an expectation like you did on November 19th, that he will begin progressing towards full basketball activities, and that his return to gameplay will be determined on how that happens in the next two to three weeks. I think there's two mistakes. First of all, I think that was clearly overly ambitious. And I think by setting that expectation, if that is then not met, it's going to be met with skepticism by the fans. So I think they need to do two things. First of all, I think that November 19th update was a mistake. Like, I think even regardless of whether it's a shoulder or whether it was him playing with the shot over the summer, I think they were overly ambitious. And I think by not meeting those expectations, it results in skepticism. Like, why isn't this happening the way they said it was going to happen? And then I think by living in the shadows after that November 19th update, you don't have a chance to then defuse the situation. So I do think that there's more pressure on Fultz because of the way they handled this. I do agree it was probably a tricky situation, one of the trickier ones out there you know, heading into it, but I, I don't think that they handled it right. And I do think there was a way to relieve pressure from Fultz to give credence to that shoulder injury and also to keep the fans feeling a little bit more connected to the process than what they ended up doing. It's it just, I don't feel like they successfully did a whole lot of anything during this whole thing. Fair enough. A- another good line for your from your piece, by the way. Whether or not Fultz takes a jump shot at the end of practices or during shootarounds will become a reality show unto itself. Oh, it, it, shoulder watch. It's going to be so, or jumper watch. It's going to be so fun. Well, it's going to so be, fun. I mean, him taking three normal jumpers in a row is the Sixers equivalent of white smoke coming out of the chimney. Like, <laughs> he, and, and by the way, I, I'll say something here. I'll make a confession. Um, Journalists aren't supposed to root for teams, but they, they'll often cop to rooting for the best stories. I'm not sure this would be that, although the redemption arc obviously is a, a tale as old as time. No, I'm just rooting for what I'll term not the worst story. I'm sick of this. Uh, yeah. This has been months of confusion, dissatisfaction, and whatever else. Please, Markel, let's let's get you back on the floor and playing at a level that everyone knows you're capable of, because this is just awful. <laughs> no, it really is. It really is. It's um, I don't, I don't even know. It's it's. I will say, I think my expectations for Fultz, maybe not this year, because at this point you're saying like he hasn't really played basketball in a year, and for a 19 year old rookie that's going to be tough. But I think my expectations long full long term, I still have a lot of confidence and hope in what Fultz will become. But uh, this has been one of the stranger starts to a rookie season 
Uh, and w- we've been privy to a lot of really strange starts. Th- this has been one of the stranger ones, for sure. Yep. And by the way, you know, we talked about that jumper watch. You had the NBA tweet out, oh, Fultz returning the, the you know, to shape or whatever, and, like, it's all, or, or Fultz working his way back, and it's all weight room and stretching. He's out there in Portland doing stretches. You know, he's basically, what was it? Um, what was the game I, I uh, basically playing? Um, ah, what's the game? Twister. He's Twister, basically out yeah. there playing Twister on the, on the baseline. It's like, what do you, if he's cleared to shoot, let us see him shoot. And that's another area where, like, okay, you say he's cleared, but now we don't see it. That's going to lead to speculation. Well, why won't he shoot in public? And it's just, there's going to be so much speculation. It's going to build up. It's going to, the, the momentum's going to get huge. I just hope this doesn't drag out too long because I do think he's going to become a huge storyline in a way that he probably doesn't want to be a storyline at this point. I mean, he's basically doing exercises from sort of like 80s uh, fitness videos, whether it's like Richard Simmons or something like that. Like he's, he's got these crazy contraptions that he's working with. Uh, yeah. Again, we, we say it all the time. Just Once he makes three or four jumpers in a row, doesn't even need to make them. Just looks good do it, doing it. Then we're back in business here. Well, I think I, we, I think we probably at one point talked about maybe previewing the next week of games. We're an hour into a podcast. I don't I don't care to podcast much more, especially because I feel like the Markel Fultz talk just sapped all the energy I had out of me. But thanks for jumping on, Rich. Talk to you soon. And please do go check out theathletic.com slash Philly. It's where Rich and I work. We enjoy being employed. Go check it out. We think there's probably a way we can both benefit from that arrangement. See you, Rich. (laughs) See you, Derek. You've been listening to the Sixers Beat right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co.